Welcome to the Portage County Safety Council podcast. We hope you enjoy today's safety talk. So now we're going to talk about your operator training. I added this, you'll see where I have lowercase l. So this is 1910-178-L, section L. And the only reason I added that, a little bit of a funny story, I was reviewing this. My wife looked over my shoulder and said, what's 178I? I went, yeah, no, that's an L. So just to make sure everybody, there's no other confusion, we're talking about section L in the 1910-178 when it comes to your operator training and what OSHA is expecting. You'll also notice my notes down here in blue where I shall equals must. So this isn't a situation where OSHA is saying, this is what you should do for your training. They're saying, this is what you must do when you're doing your training for powered industrial trucks. So if we read through this, the employer shall, or the employer must ensure that each powered industrial truck operator is competent to operate that powered industrial truck safely, as demonstrated by successful completion of the training and evaluation specified in this paragraph, right? So paragraph L, that's what they're talking about, this paragraph. They expect you to have a training program that's gonna follow what they're pointing out in section L of the 1910-178. So, Prior to permitting an employee to operate powered industrial trucks, fork trucks, reach trucks, picker trucks within your facility, around your equipment, around your product, around your employees, the employer must ensure that each operator has successfully completed the training that's outlined in paragraph L. So the trainer, and I will go share with you, that was pointed out in two locations, well, just like this. The trainer, two different lines within 178L, they point out the person who must have knowledge, training, and experience to train others, train other operators, and evaluate their competence on the trucks. A couple paragraphs later, they reiterate that, and they say all operator training and evaluation, they use shall, I changed it to must, be conducted by a person who has the knowledge, training, and experience to train powered industrial truck operators and evaluate their competence. Now, here's my note for the employers are out there, the people that's responsible for this at their facilities. Be prepared if you are challenged on your selected trainers, all right? Maybe you have one person, maybe you have five people that do it, but make sure that you can say, if an OSHA person showed up and said, well, how did you select that person to be your trainer? I'm like, well, you know, John's a good guy. He's been with us for 20 years. He helped us develop our standard. He's very familiar with the 178. Um, he's um, operated all of our vehicles without fail. And, you know, he's done some additional training. That would probably suffice. <clears throat> but sometimes you'll get, how did you select Bob over there to be your trainer? He's like, well, he started with us about a month ago and he's done a really good job. That may not be enough. So be prepared and maybe have something to document why your selected trainers are the ones that you have, have chosen. Then it comes to the training. And again, we're still in section L. Training shall or must consist of a combination of formal instruction, practical training, and evaluation of the operator's performance in the workplace. So I reiterated that combination of formal, practical, and an evaluation process. Many times, and I'm the trainer here at Delta, I'll get people in and once we conclude their training, they have shared with me man, you guys take this stuff pretty serious. A lot of places I go and they're just like, hey, you ever drove a forklift before? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, you're good. Go ahead. You're good. 
They haven't watched the video. They haven't read a book. They haven't been introduced to the equipment or the controls. Nobody went over limitations within the factory or how to use the truck docks properly, whether it be a spring uh, dock leveler, hydraulic dock leveler, the dock plate, when you can, when you can't, where you can, where you can't. So OSHA is specifically spelling out that the expectation is you're going to perform all of these tasks within 178L to ensure that you have safe operators within your work environment. Training program content, powered industrial truck operators must, and again, I change it to must receive initial training in the following topics. Operator instructions, what the warning signs are, precautions, types of trucks the operator will be authorized to operate. Just because somebody can sit down and safely operate a sit-down counterbalance fork truck doesn't necessarily mean they would be competent in a narrow aisle stand-up reach truck or one of those tuggers or a straddle truck or you get where I'm going. So ensure that if you're going to have operators operating your vehicles, they have been properly trained in the various types. Could be gas versus electric versus diesel, knowing where you can use a regular electric versus an EX electric or one that's designed for hazardous uh, locations. So all of that has got to be part of your training program. The difference between the truck and the automobile. This is another section where I'm going to ad lib a little bit here. This is the only area in the standard where they OSHA has identified the you know, automobile as compared to a powered industrial truck. And they talk about the difference. Well, they steer from the rear and they're kind of top heavy and they have a pivot point and a fulcrum point, a lifting mechanism. But I believe at this point, this is where there was some assumptions that were built into the standard. I think the people that wrote the 178 assume that most people in the workforce had a driver's license and typically already operated automobiles. Now, anybody else that's out there that has done training or does the training for their facility, like me, you can probably identify the person who doesn't have a driver's license, who doesn't drive an automobile, because they're like that teenage kid behind the wheel doing that white knuckle death grip on the steering wheel, and they're bright-eyed, and they're looking at you like, I can't believe I'm about to drive this truck through all this stuff in, my, in this building. That's the first indication that oh boy, this person's not even comfortable driving a normal vehicle, let alone something with this much power, with forks and carrying products, amongst all this pallet racking, amongst all this equipment, amongst all my other employees potentially. So keep that in mind. Now at Delta, what we've decided to do is a prerequisite before somebody can be a powered industrial truck operator is you must have a state driver's license. Doesn't necessarily have to be the state of Ohio, but you have to have a state driver's license. Therefore, at least we know you're at least comfortable with the idea of driving a powered and a powered vehicle around. You know, whether it's a you know a, a small eco vehicle or if it's a big the Ford F three fifty, at least you know how to drive a vehicle. You understand the concepts. So that's something that we've incorporated as a prerequisite before we allow anybody to operate our trucks. Additionally, going back to the standard, you have to explain and instruct them on the truck controls and where they're located and what they do and how they work. You know, when I do a training with people and we're looking at a sit-down uh, counterbalance fork truck, I'll tell them, you know, you see your, your controls there for your hydraulics. The first one should be up and down. The next one is typically going to be your tilt. If you have a third one, it's going to be your side shift or a different attachment that you may have on your vehicle. You want to make sure that they understand that because these are the tools that they have on that truck to move whatever they're moving, picking, stacking, 
more safely, gives them more control if they know how to use it. Anybody out there with the second one that we talked about was for tilt control, a lot of times they come with a little button on the top. And most people don't really know what that button is, and that's an auto level feature. So if you have your forks tilted back, if you push that button down and hold it and tilt forward, it, it will automatically stop itself at about level and perpendicular for the mast. That's a great tool for operators who have to put things in pallet racks or stack like a Gaylord box on top of another Gaylord box. It at least gives them a starting point to know that they're near that level. These are the kind of instructions that you wanna be sure that you're sharing as part of your training tools when you're doing uh, powered industrial truck training for your operators. Steering and maneuvering, again, this is, goes back to the difference between trucks and automobiles. They steer from the rear, you gotta watch the pivot point. You know, you not only gotta watch the back where it's swinging, you gotta watch the front where the forks are swinging. And it's different based off, you know, the various types of trucks that are out there. Fork and attachment adaptions, operations, and lim use limitations. When can you put on fork extensions? What about if you want to put a different attachment? I know that we have a boom that we attach here. It's only allowed to go on one truck. We had to send that information for that boom to the manufacturer who reviewed it and sent me back another capacity data plate that is on that truck. So when we're using that boom, we know what our limitations are. That is also a requirement. And if you don't have that in place, especially if something bad happens, OSHA is going to come in and say, well, you know, where's the manufacturer's documentation or capacity data plate that says you're okay to use it at that weight limit, you know, at 10 feet out or 12 feet out or whatever, however big that boom would be, or any other potential attachment, whether it be a barrel lift or a grapple or something along those lines. Make sure that you have the data plate and documentation from the manufacturer for adding that attachment to their truck. Vehicle capacity, and again, that's back to the data plate. And the other thing I would share as you're doing your training and you're showing them, yes, that's the capacity data plate. If I'm a new operator, I drive an automobile and, you know, I know that I got a VIN number and I have different things, but <clears throat> capacity data plate might be something new to me. You know, let them know that other than model number, serial number, the type of electric or gas or whatever, it's also going to tell you your, your, your total capacity, your lifting heights, load center at 24 inches. Some of them will give you a load center additionally at 30 inches. And that's all great if you know it. But for that new operator, what's a load center? What do you mean 24 inches? What are you talking about? So make sure they understand that. You know, just last week, we were moving a piece of equipment and the forks that came on this rental truck was 10 feet long, which was amazing. I, most I've ever seen before is eight feet. They had 10 foot long forks on this truck. And this engineer I was working with said, yeah, I don't want you to pick it here. I want you to pick it like this. And I was like, yeah, but my forks need to get underneath this thing farther. I'm four feet away from getting to my backrest. This is a 10,000 pound truck at a 24 inch load. As I go farther away from that backrest, that value of 10,000 pounds drops dramatically not to mention the strain that you're putting on the fork. So make sure they understand that that vehicle capacity and load centers, that's all part of that, that what we call the practical training. After they've done the video, they've read the book, they've taken the test. And by the way, they have to meet a minimum passing score for us to even get to the practical part. And then when we're going over the controls and the driving, we talk about the vehicle capacity and um, load centers and all that uh, as part of ours. I recommend it for others. Additionally, here you see in the blue, plus other listed topics about each type of powered industrial truck, all can be found in 178L. I didn't want to bore you with covering 
all of the different things that are in there, but these are some of the more basic ones that apply to most vehicles. Your operating limitations. You should, you know, if you have a speed limit requirement or if you have an area in your shop where hey, at this area you have to go like two miles per hour because there's a lot of traffic or there's line intersections. That's all part of some of the limitations. That'll be part of your work-related topics, your specific area, pedestrian traffic areas where the vehicle will be operated. You know, make sure that you have things in place. Make sure that your pedestrian traffic knows that there's tow motor traffic and, you know, talk to your tow motor operators about you know, using their horn and making sure that people know that they're operating in that area. Hazardous classified locations where the vehicle will be operated, and you can see where I added, or may not be operated. You know, you, you might have an area that, you know, this, this potential warehouse, and it only can have a, an EX type truck in that area, and you have other trucks that are non-EX that can't go in that operator. All of your operators need to understand that. At Delta, we have aisles where we just said, you know what, there's no reason to take a powered industrial truck beyond this point. If you need to move something past this point, use a pilot jack. You know, moving slower, there's less power, you have more control, you should be able to stop it. Um, so those are the kind of things that you want to point out. And then any of your ramps, other sloped surfaces that could affect the vehicle stability. Now you see the picture I have here. That person is dangerously close to the end of that dock leveler and could roll right out the back of that, um, off that leveler out of the building, have a very bad accident. This brings me to the other story I want to share with you. We had a similar situation years ago. I was fresh out of the military, I was first into getting into the safety for a, a private industry. We had a warehouse person who was loading a truck. He got done. He parked his power industrial truck by his office. The truck driver was waiting there. They signed some paperwork. The truck driver was exiting. This person went into their office to file the paperwork, look for whether the next order that he had to pick, whatever, whatever the case may be. But as he came out of his office, he decided, well, I'm going to back this truck back up over the dock leveler so I can get turned around to go where I want to go. Well, wouldn't you know, at that exact same time, the truck was pulling away from the dock and the dock leveler dropped as he was square on it with our truck. And of course, the truck driver kept on going. He didn't know what was happening, but he tried hitting the brake, didn't do you no good. When those things drop, it's a pretty steep angle. The truck was going off the end of the dock. He jumped from the truck, grabbed onto whatever he could grab onto. In this case, it happened to be the track for the roll up door and the truck tipped over, flipped up, the forks narrowly missed him as it dropped down to the concrete below. And when all stopped, he was fine holding on to the truck. Now, obviously he wasn't wearing his seatbelt or he would have went off with the truck. It was a propane uh, truck, just like this one. The impact was so forceful that that ring, if you look at the right side of that propane tank, it left an indent of that ring in the concrete. That's how hard it hit. Meanwhile, we looked up at our operator who was still clinging for life, basically, on the tracks of that doorway and shaking profusely. And fortunately, his only injuries were the cuts in his hands from gripping it so tightly. But he was shaking incredibly for over an hour. He decided to take the rest of the day off, which I completely understand. We were able to right the truck. Fortunately, other than some scratches and dents, it was okay. We were able to get it back in. I'm sure the company had it inspected. I wasn't involved in that part of it there, but I, I happened to be close enough to witness all of this that was happening. 
that operator the next day decided he didn't want to work there anymore. And I don't know where he went from there, but that situation, you know, it's not a near miss. It was an absolute accident. Cuts on his hands, which were minor compared to what could have happened, but life altering where he was just like, yeah, I'm done. I can't come back. It's very important to ensure that people understand limitations. One of the things that I include when we do training here is dock levelers, dock plates are only to be driven on when you're going in and out of a truck. The truck should be either with chalks or a restraint device that's attached to the building to make sure the truck can't leave unexpectedly. We see pictures of that kind of stuff all the time. But dock plates and dock levelers are intended to be driven on when you're loading or exiting a truck that you were loading, not for turning around, not for parking your truck on. I know it's a convenient you know, spot, a five by five area, but um, bad idea because if something like that happens, um, that truck is almost always gonna go off the end of the dock. Some of the advancements, now this looks like an older picture. We are fortunate here when we did our building addition about 12 years ago, that our hydraulic dock leveler <clears throat> is the one that has about a six inch steel plate from that tongue piece that rests on the truck. And that's there. So should you start to drift, that it'll stop the truck from going off the end. So there are some enhancements in that, which I'm not talking about later, but I thought I would share here that if you're gonna be um, adding some, some dock levelers, that's out there for you to help try to prevent that from happening. So OSHA also talks about refresher training and evaluation. So when they talk about the operator has been observed to operate the vehicle in an unsafe manner, that's a red flag. Time to, you know, maybe not have to do all of the training over, but a portion of it of where they were not operating safe. If they've been involved in an accident or a near miss, obviously an accident is easy. There should be your documentation. Near misses are a little bit more difficult. I mean, if you track them, if it's obvious, certainly a good good red flag to know when it's it's time to uh, do another training. I know one of the, the other things that I've incorporated here, and it's something that I think I created. I've, I've started it uh, an employer before Delta, and I brought it to Delta when I came, was a three-strike policy. And if there's minor infractions where we felt like they maybe were operating a little too quickly, they failed to use their horn, they didn't do their inspection on the truck, um, whatever the case may be, anybody in leadership can stop that operator, ask for their license, explain what they've done. And on the, the wallet license that we ask them to carry, we put a little X, we write down a brief horn, seatbelt, whatever the case would be. And then we have them initial it and date it. And that stays on their license for two years, much like getting points on your driver's license. If you get three strikes, we pull your license and now you have to completely redo training. I can tell you, fortunately, I've only had someone get to two strikes. Uh, one person who got to two strikes ended up finding a job somewhere else. So we, we didn't get the opportunity to see if they were going to get the three strikes and exercise the, re, the retraining portion of that. But a lot of times when they realize somebody is watching, somebody is evaluating, and I got a strike, much like I got a couple of points on my license, uh, this is going to be a problem. And in our policy, it talks about if, if you're a warehouse person and your job involves using the tow motor and you get three strikes because you continuously not wear your seatbelt, you don't use your horn, a combination of any of those minor issues, your employee, your, um, your direct supervisor may elect to use the disciplinary schedule and say, listen, I know you got strikes, but you shouldn't have got to this point. And so we're going to document it and use our disciplinary. And obviously, if it's a more severe situation, 
and the strikes don't even come. This is more for that reminder before we get to a formal process. It's a tool, it seems to have worked for me where I have been, and that's why I wanted to share it. When you're doing your evaluations, if you detect something um, with your operator that is not good, even like the ones I said, seatbelt, horn, they seem to be reckless, they're shoppy with their load, um, they're turning too fast, that's a good opportunity to identify that, yeah, you know what, we're going to put you through training again. We don't think that you're taking this seriously or you're not grasping the severity of what you could do with this vehicle. That's an opportunity. Um, and then obviously where it talks about operators assigned a different truck or you bring a new truck that's different. So, you know, you have a several different sit-down counterbalance trucks or you have several stock picker trucks. Um, for us, what it was is we brought in a walkie straddle truck that was new to us. We not had one before. So we had to identify the operators that we wanted to use it. We didn't have to have them rewatch our video, read the book, take the test, but we did have to go over the manual with them, the limitations of that truck, evaluate them using that truck, and then sign off that they were okay or authorized to go ahead and use that truck. And there's only a handful of people that are allowed to use that truck. So those are some of the times that you might have to do some additional training. And then again, the last line there, if there's a condition that changes in your workplace that could create a, a, a safety operation for your truck, maybe you're having a trench dug across an aisle, you want to make sure if that aisle is used for your trucks, that all of your operators on every ship know, hey, you guys can't go this way. We'll let you know when it's safe to, to operate there. Or typically you have a stock picker truck, but now there's a pipe or a light or a gas line or what have you that's hanging down lower than normal. You know, obviously do what you got to do to make sure they can see it, but also advise them, hey, down aisle J, there's a new pipe. And when you get to that section, you need to stop, lower your vehicle. Um, it can't be higher than X um, before you would proceed. Hopefully you don't put yourself in that position, but if it would happen, those would be some of the conditions that you would use to retrain um, your operators in that particular area. So the evaluation process, an evaluation of each, each powered industrial truck operator's performance shall, must be conducted at least once every three years. That's per OSHA, at least once every three years. Some of you may say we do it every six months. Some of you may say we do it every year, every two years. That's all great. But for those of you that don't do it more frequently, at a minimum of every three years, you must evaluate each of your powered industrial truck operators. Certification, and OSHA again uses that shall word, which we've changed to must. The employer must certify that each operator has been trained. So that's the first part of it. Right, you're certifying, you're signing off. Somebody's got a document that says this person went through our training program, and our trainer, who has all that experience, has evaluated that person's operation of that truck. And we've either deemed that they are certified to use our trucks, we're comfortable with how they operate. And it's okay if you do the training and the evaluation and you decide this person is not safe operating this truck. And that's what I share with people. As I evaluate you, I'm basically signing off that I feel that you're safe to operate that truck in this facility amongst our people, amongst our other equipment, amongst our warehouse area and all of our product. If I don't feel that you meet that level, you could have watched the video, read the book, passed the training. And then as we're doing the evaluation process, you have that white knuckle death grip on the steering wheel and you're real choppy and you're, you know, I have other people, I call it ghost steering. 
you know, the truck was going fine, but you're randomly steering to the left and to the right. Stop. If I don't feel that they're, they're safe to operate, I will not pass them. And there have been people here that have not received <clears throat> authorization or what people call a license to use our vehicles. I just won't do it. Your certification must include, again, the standard says shall, include the name of the operator, the date of the training, the date of the evaluation, and the identity of the person or persons performing the training and evaluation. Could be different dates. We have them read a book, watch a video, take the test. When they take the test, there's a date. That test date, assuming they passed, I may not get to the practical training for a few days, maybe a week. And then that'll have a different date. So don't think that everything has to be done in one day. You just want to make sure it's accurate and it follows what you've done. And absolutely make sure that you have it documented because if you're challenged, this is what you want to pull out of that, that authorized person's training folder that should be in HR in their training folder to say, yep, here's when they were trained. Here, I even have the copy of their test. Here's the certification that we made for them. And here's their three-year evaluation or annual evaluation, whatever. I have it all documented right there. So if it ever comes into question as an employer, I'm covered and I'm showing that OSHA compliance safety officer, hey, I'm doing everything I can to meet the, the 178 and section L that you guys have identified, what, you, what your expectations are. So be sure to, to do that. And then additionally, the rest of 178, the different items, and this is the kind of stuff that as I've sat through trainings, I typically hear, so I wanted to focus on some other areas. M is the truck operations and traveling and, and so on. You can read that. I also wanted to share that uh, 178 has an appendix, uh, appendix and it's A, and it offers some additional uh, definitions, some additional training materials to help you build your program. It, it refocuses on the fulcrum point, uh, a lot of what you'll see in your, uh, your powered industrial truck videos. Um, so that is there as well, should you want to choose to use it. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. For more episodes, check us out on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Podbeam, or Stitcher. To get new episodes sent directly to your phone or smart device, be sure to subscribe. To learn more about how your company can earn up to a 4% Ohio BWC premium rebate by becoming an active member of the Portage County Safety Council, please visit our website at www.portagecountysafetycouncil.wordpress.com. The preceding information is for entertainment purposes only. Views expressed may not reflect the views of any affiliated or sponsoring individuals or organizations. Listeners should carefully weigh information provided and seek advice from an appropriate professional before implementing. Listener discretion is advised.